0: Thinking, clear thinking, good thinking, coming up with good ideas that you want to share with the world is really about doing your homework. It's about studying the masters who have come before you, getting their technique so into your bones that from that place of proficiency, you can become a true master, which allows you to add your own authentic voice and style uh, to your work once you've done all the really boring stuff that most people want to skip over Welcome to the
1: Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Baloo. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a 6 to 7 figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by ecircleacademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. I met this gentleman at an exclusive writer's mastermind put on by the one, the only, the legendary Steve Pressfield back in September of 2019. He and I got to learn at the feet of the master himself, and we got to know each other. We hit it off. I told him I had a show, and he said, I'd like to come on, and I said, I'd love to have you on, and here he is. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one the only, the legendary Jeff Goins. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
0: Hey, Nikki. Good to be here. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. And it's a pleasure to have you here, my friend. Really,
1: truly an honor. So listen, I've gotten to know you a little bit during the time that we spent together at Steve Pressfield's incredible event, but my audience, they don't know you yet and they want to learn from you, but the only way they're going to open their heart to you is if they get to know your heart. They need to know who is Jeff Goins, why does he care so much, and how can what he has to say make a difference for me
0: in my life. So tell
1: us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Jeff Goins?
0: Well, um, I have always been creative. I grew up making things as Uh, a young kid. I used to draw cartoon figures like Garfield. And as I got a little bit older, I made my own comic books. Uh, And then in high school, I started a band with a couple of friends and got into music. And that was fun. And just in various seasons of my life, I was just really fascinated with making things and sharing them with the world. And, um, you know, then I, I grew up and, and got over all those, uh, all those ideas, went to college, uh, and, you know, started to become like a real, a real person, uh, figured I'd have to get a job at some point. And then when I graduated college, I had an opportunity to tour all of North America with a band. And cool. so I, I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And while I was touring on, um, uh, you know, I was touring with this band, we would save money by staying in host homes and we would stay with these people. And most of them would say some variation of the same thing, which was, it's great that you're doing this now because when you get older, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to have to grow up and get a real job. And I agreed with these people, and so that's exactly what I did. I finished the the, the year long tour. I mo- I quit the band, moved to Nashville, which is the opposite order in which those things happen. Uh, settled down, you know, got married, started a family, and uh, you know, got a job working as a marketing director for a nonprofit. And I did that for about seven years. Wow. And about five years in, I started to get this itch that I couldn't quite scratch. And I couldn't figure it out. And I read all these personal development books and I attended all these seminars. And I started to realize through a series of epiphanies that I I was being called into being a writer and that this was my life's work, at least as I understood it at that point. So I started a blog and people started reading it and it kind of took off from there. And my whole goal was to make an extra $30,000 a year off of this side business that was starting to turn into something, uh, writing books and teaching courses for writers who, who were struggling like I was. And it took off. And uh, the first year I made over $150,000 off of this little side project. I quit my job, uh, went full-time with this, became a full-time writer and started writing books and teaching online courses for writers and creatives. And I've been doing that ever since. I started that in 2012. Brother, that is incredible. So
1: you were in a band first and then you quit and you moved to Nashville. How does that work? (laughs) Aren't you supposed to move to Nashville first, then start a band? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I moved down there, ended up chasing a girl, married her. And yeah, that's how that worked.
1: That is fantastic. You got yourself here. You started a side hustle. You thought it'd be nice to just make a bit of extra money, but it ended up replacing the income you had in your regular business. And what Is interesting about this is it's what I call creating thought leadership for your space, okay? So thought leadership is a very powerful concept. One of my mentors is a fellow by the name of Matt Church. He wrote a book called The Thought Leader Practice. He's out of Australia, and he created the whole thought leader movement out of Australia about 20, 25 years ago. And here's what he has to say. And I'd like to get your comments on this. He says, an expert is someone who knows something, but a thought leader is someone who's known for knowing something. Mm. I'd love to get your comment on that.
0: Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. I think a thought leader is, by definition, somebody who leads the way other people think about something. So yes, it's good to be an expert to know something. And I suppose it's good to be known for knowing something. I certainly chased that. There was a very ego-driven part of me that chased that for a long time. I think there is maybe a third layer to it, which is the layer at which true influence and true change happens, which is that you get an idea to spread that spreads beyond your namesake. So for example, um, sometimes I teach seminars for writers and I'll, I'll talk about this. I call this a big idea and true thought leaders create ideas that are actually bigger than themselves. And they're not known for the idea. The idea is bigger than the name and all great ideas uh, are this way, I think. So when I'm teaching seminars for writers, I'll ask people, you know, have you ever heard of lifestyle design or the four hour work week? And you know, lots of people have have heard of this and I'm speaking to entrepreneurs. Everybody knows Tim Ferriss wrote that book. And then I'll ask people, have you ever heard of, you know, a love language? And depending on the audience, lots of people don't know who wrote the book, the five love languages. I mean, that idea has spread so far and so deep and so wide that people know the term without knowing the person who Originated it, and I, I know the, the man. You know, Dr. Gary Chapman, who wrote the Five Love Languages, which has sold over 12 million copies worldwide and translated into hundreds of languages. And I asked him, you know, where did that idea come from? He said, "Oh, it came from somebody else. I borrowed it from uh, this pastor who was a marriage counselor, and I started using it. And I credit him and give him all the credit, you know. But like, it it took off, and so I think it's great to be known for knowing something." The kind of change and influence that I'm interested in being a part of these days is to spend so much time on making the idea great that it spreads far beyond my own reach.
1: That my friend is a very interesting way of looking at it. So ideas are important and ideas are powerful. and. You've got to have good ideas and good thinking before anybody's going to pay attention to your ideas. A lot of people who come up with ideas, unfortunately, don't take the time to do so in a very structured fashion. Right, And if you're to do that, you first need to have a way to capture your ideas and get them out of your head. So Matt Church has this process he created called an IP uh, snapshot. He's nicknamed it the pink sheet because when he first came up with the IP snapshot, intellectual property snapshot, he printed it on a bunch of pink sheets. So people started calling them pink sheets. And these pink sheets start off with like a statement of what your idea is and then a deeper explanation. And then he has you go into some anecdotes and stories And then he has you go and and look at some studies that are out there, you know, academic or otherwise. And then he has you create a visual model of it all. And then he likes for you to create a metaphor. So what this is like. So it's like, here's one so that I came up with, because I do pink sheets from time to time just to kind of keep my idea making skills sharp. I say money is a symbol of your mastery and comprehension of life's great journey. So that's my statement. So I say imbue your selling efforts with energy, charisma, enthusiasm, love, the God force and caring, and that will excite people and bring them to life. And then I I talk about a couple stories of people that I know that have done this, some famous, some otherwise. I haven't come up with a study yet. But then I drew a visual model where I kind of showed most people who vibe really, really low, and then the people that are really excited about what they're doing, and I show and I and I looked at the difference between the low vibers aren't making a lot of money, and the high vibers seem to attract money faster than they know what to do with it. So that's kind of like the Matt Church way of starting to create ideas. And in my experience, a ton of folks out there who say they're thought leaders or want to be thought leaders, don't do the most important part of thought leadership, which is thinking. So what's your comment on that?
0: Yeah, uh, gratitude and clear thinking seems really important to me, understanding that we don't come up with ideas, we rearrange them. Mm. And I think Uh, You know, I heard uh, Jim Henson once say that one of his predecessors, Bert Tilstrom, who was um, a hero of his, who had these really like cheesy, not great puppets uh, that he did on a show on television. Uh, He said Bert Tilstrom did more to put puppets on television than Jim Henson ever did. This is Jim Henson, right? The creator of the Muppets, you know, one of the co-creators of Sesame Street, uh, who is an icon. He's and a legend. Re- yeah, uh, an international uh, man of puppetry, right? And um, <laughs> yeah. and he credited somebody who came before him. And there's a historian named Will Durant who says there's nothing new except arrangement. You know, nothing new under the sun, sort of thing. And so, thinking, clear thinking, good thinking, coming up with good ideas that you want to share with the world is really about doing your homework. It's about studying the masters who have come before you, getting their technique so into your bones that from that place of proficiency, you can become a true master, which allows you to add your own authentic voice and style uh, to your work. Once you've done all the really boring stuff that most people want to skip over. And so when we think about becoming a thought leader, like having an idea that spreads. One, you have to study all the ideas that have come before. Two, you have to add something new to the domain. You have to add something mm. novel, interesting. You know, um, Nikki, a lot of people think that you need a good idea to succeed. And the truth is that good ideas fail all the time. They do. Uh, great ideas even get forgotten. We follow people, not because their ideas are good, This is very important. Most people don't understand this. We follow people not because their ideas are good, but because their ideas are interesting. Now, there's lots of fascinating research behind this if you want to Google it and get all nerdy like I like to. But in 1971, there was a paper by a sociologist named Murray S. Davis called That's Interesting, where he studied the field of phenomenology. And he argues that we pay attention to leaders, politicians, religious leaders, business leaders thought leaders, authors, inventors, visionaries, not because their ideas are just good or even true, because you can win an election without telling the truth. Maybe you didn't realize this, but it's true. <laughs> um,
1: we do You mean like you decisions. can? You mean like what? What was what was the one statement? My God, I remember in the two thousand eight election. If you like your doctor, you can keep it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, they always like yes. I don't do should, it, but that's but
1: that, just one that's stuck in my yeah. head. <laughs> I
0: mean. Yeah. Make America great again. Um, actually, doesn't make sense when you break it down, but it uh, appeals to a nation's sense of nostalgia, to a certain group of people who go, oh, there was a time. This is a human bias that we have, right? There was a time back then when things were better, right? So an idea doesn't have to be true in order for it to spread. We follow leaders because their ideas are interesting. How do you make your idea interesting? One, study. Get really good at understanding your field, the ideas that have come before you, the thought leaders who are saying things now, and then two, Find a way to disagree with it because an interesting idea is an idea that subverts what the audience expects. Mm. So you have to surprise your audience. Otherwise they just take it for granted. Why do good ideas not succeed? And by good ideas, I mean ideas that everybody kind of universally agrees on. They don't succeed because people go, well, yeah, of course the sky's blue. Yeah. I'm not going to go tell my friends about that. I'm going to tell my friends about." You know something I read in a Malcolm Gladwell book where something appears to be one way and is actually some other way. So Jesus did this, Gandhi did this, Martin Luther King Jr. did this, and many of you know the best-selling authors that you read today um, do this often without even realizing it. You know, there's a lot of truth to what you said. Let's unpack
1: some of it. First of all. Uh, I'm glad you quoted Will Durant. I, I actually have Will and Ariel Durant's uh, set of books on human history. Impressive. Uh, yeah, I haven't read them, but I have them. So, <laughs> I do plan on reading them. It's on my bucket list. They they are really, really bright people. So it's really cool that you follow their work. And I really agree with you when it comes to ideas not necessarily needing to be true or even original. Steve Jobs, who, in my opinion, is the most successful capitalist in the history of, of the world, created a company, Apple, that's a world-beating company, basically by borrowing the best ideas of a whole bunch of other companies. He borrowed the best ideas from um, Xerox and their labs at Palo Alto and, and turned that into the Macintosh operating system, right? The ideas that uh, created the the iPod and the iPhone all were ideas that existed out there. They were not original to Steve Jobs, but he found a way to package them together or to arrange them, as you put it, in a way that people found interesting. And when it comes to politics, you know, I, I'm... i uh, I actually studied international politics. I have a master's degree in that from Georgetown University and you know being from Iran going through the Iranian revolution I I I I'm just interested in this to begin with and I'm fascinated by how certain people win elections and certain people lose elections that are more deserving. So You know, love him or hate him, there's no question the 2008 election, John McCain was an impressive human being. I mean, he went through uh, being a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. He bucked his own party. This is a man of courage, real courage in the world. If anybody ever had kind of the character credentials of deserving to win an election, it was him. Yet he got his butt kicked. And he got his butt kicked really badly because he was boring. His ideas weren't interesting. He talked about things that people went, oh, yeah, that's nice. But there's that old man, and then there's here's Barack Obama, who came in, and and and, and you know you you can tell my political bias by sounding it. I I, I found him to be to be uh, uh, someone who wasn't truthful. Hope and change sounded really great, but what did it mean really? But man, it captured everybody's imagination, and boom, this guy got elected, and he'd been a senator to just two and a half years ago. Before that, he was a state senator. That that had never happened before, and it was very very impressive to me. That, that he managed to do that and i look at the best companies the best products they're all idea driven every single one of them are idea driven look at tesla i'm a grateful tesla stockholder tesla hasn't made any money yet right tesla is mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. in the red tesla is may never make any money there's people who say that i, I know people who are in the investment business who're telling me get rid of your stock. they have been telling you this when the stock was a hundred bucks, <laughs> right? And it's now almost almost 900 bucks. And thank God I didn't listen to them. But what's Elon Musk's vision? Elon Musk's vision is he wants to rid the world of fossil fuel burning
0: cars. And boy, is that an idea that's captured the imagination. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at companies that are succeeding, when you look at, at the field of innovation, you know, Apple, Tesla, et cetera, a phrase that I often think of as same, but different. And this is, um, this is a marketing branding technique where you pick a category and then you pick one rule in the category that you want to defy. So you stand out. And the reason that this works is because you go, I understand cars. I understand electric cars. Even they're like these little leaf things that you drive around and they're kind of ugly, but they're, you know, um, they're, they're good for <laughs> fuel economy. Like, they're, you know, they're good for the environment and uh, they're good for getting around. And Tesla goes, great. We're gonna do that, but it's gonna be beautiful. It's gonna be amazing. It's gonna it's gonna be a luxury. This has really never been done before. It's gonna be a luxury, you know, electric car, right? And I remember thinking, what's the big deal about Tesla? I thought the same thing about Apple devices. What's the big deal about a an iPhone? And then my first friend who had uh, who had an iPhone that I knew showed it to me. He was a super early adopter, and he handed it to me. And I don't know if you remember this, you know, he he took a picture of me. He handed me the iPhone. And then he said, flip it around. And I flipped it around and the picture flipped with it. And I was like, oh my God, holy crap, this is amazing. You know, I was on like a Razor flip phone at the time. And uh, so same but different is the technique that innovators use where they study the ideas that have come before them. And then they pick something that they're gonna change, that they're gonna iterate on, that they're gonna make better. Like Steve Jobs did with the Macintosh. It's like, we're gonna borrow the mouse you know, from Xerox, we're going to borrow the graphic user interface from over here. We're going to put all these pieces together in a way that's never been put together. And we're going to package it in a beautiful package and it'll just work, right? And they've been doing that one form or another ever since. And so you don't have to be first at everything. The best thing to do often in the field of innovation is take two different things and combine them in a unique way and create your own category and be first in that. Al Rees talks about this in his 22 Immutable Laws of Branding, where he talks about the law of the first. And what people don't understand about that is it's really hard to be first in, in a category, you know, facial tissue, Kleenex. Well, they they beat that, you know, but what you can do is you can create a new category. You can change one thing, you can break one rule, and all of a sudden you have a new category that you can be first in, that you can stand out in. So you can't out Apple, Apple. You can't out Tesla, Tesla. And so when we think about ideas, start with the raw material, know kind of what has come before, know the rules, know the conventions, and then break one, right? Do something different.
1: This is really good. This is actually quite brilliant. Are you familiar with Donald Miller and
0: StoryBrand? Yes, of course. Yeah, he talks about similar things, same but different. Yeah. Same but different. Yeah. So Chick Fil A is like you know McDonald's, but they only serve chicken. Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah. cleaner and nicer. <laughs> it, it, it is, and they're and and they're not
1: they're closed on Sundays, which is yeah, yeah, and they're still by far uh, the the most profitable per location fast food outlet in the world. Like by far, it's not even close. Um, In my opinion, they're going to overtake McDonald's. They're absolutely going to overtake McDonald's. It is not – and and, in 20 years, McDonald's will be a distant second or third to them. But Uh, let's come back to Donald Miller. So I have – I bought the StoryBrand course online a few years back. And I've actually attended a, a local StoryBrand course in in uh, uh, Toronto, Ontario area. Oh, cool! But there was there was a video segment in the original StoryBrand course where Donald Miller showed a couple of ads as examples of ads that tell a great story. So one of the ads that told a really great story was an ad by a company called Gerber Knives. And I'd never heard of Gerber Knives, and I um, I hadn't owned a, a pocket knife since I was 12 yes. years old at that time. Right, so. I watched that ad, and Donald Miller just said, watch the ad. So I watched the ad. I was hooked.
0: (laughs) I I was
1: hooked. I saw that ad, and I'm like, that's the kind of man I've always (laughs) wanted to be, a badass. You know what I mean? Uh, a, A man who is capable of doing things with his hands. You can throw him in the roughest situations and he's going to come out on top. And that kind of a man carries a <laughs> knife and not like a type of pocket knife, the like traditional pocket knife I carried when I was a kid, but a modern, you know, gnarly looking pocket knife, like a Gerber knife. And that weekend I went out and I bought a knife. I didn't buy a Gerber. Uh, where I went, they didn't have one. I bought a a Buck One Ten. Then I went Mm. to a a store that carried a bunch of different knives. I said, okay, I want to buy a Gerber knife. And the the guy there says, you don't want to buy a Gerber knife. Gerber knives aren't that good. You want to buy a Benchmade knife or a Zero Tolerance. I ended up buying a Benchmade, and Mm. I've never actually bought a Gerber knife. I kind of feel bad. I bought a couple other things from Gerber, (laughs) but never a Gerber knife. I got to go buy one of their knives. But Mm. I'm like 16 knives in now. Wow, oh my 60 <laughs> knives in, yeah. And I yeah. got some crazy knives out of watching that one ad because that ad to me spoke to the essence of me as a man and the kind of man I want to be, you know, a tough, self-reliant man, the kind of man people look up to and the kind of man people want to have around. And then I started to, because, you know, I can get nerdy about certain things and I started to get nerdy about the whole knife industry. So I subscribed to the to Blade magazine. I, I interviewed a bunch of knife makers for my podcast. Really interesting episodes, by the way, Jeff. You ought to listen to Greg Metford and Matt Connable in particular, and Curtis Ivito, those three guys, they each own knife companies. Very intelligent men. So I'm looking and I'm going, wait a minute, this industry, how big is it? It's under a billion dollars. It's like $750, dollars million a year. And I'm like, what? That's tiny how come? And so I've been thinking about why. And the main reason is most of these companies don't have that kind of ad, that kind of story going out there. They make knives for knife nerds. They talk Mm. about Rockwell hardness. Most people don't know what the hell Rockwell hardness is. It measures how hard the blade steel of your knife is, right? Mm. And Mm. Depending on the type of knife you have, it needs to be in a certain range or your knife is too soft, i.e. that when you, you use it, you know it, it'll get dull really quickly or break or your knife's too hard, which means it's brittle and it can easily break and that sort of thing. And there's all kinds of other terms they use when they talk about knives and regular people watching that and go, knives, oh, you know, kind of dangerous. No, no, no. I don't want to be that guy. People use knives to cut people and they don't want to hear all that nerd talk. And I've been thinking to myself, knives are actually really cool they're actually a fun tool you start using a knife there's a fidget factor to them you can open and close them like a, you know what i mean and it's really really fun as uh, as a as a guy as a man you'll like them even women love it i, I bought a knife for my lady it's a small knife and I'll, t- I'll tell you a story which is an interesting story and i'll come back to why i'm, I'm telling you the story she went shopping with her little niece, who at the time was 16 years old, uh, and she was buying her a dress. And while her little niece was in the change room, changing into some dresses, she was just walking around. The store was about to close, and her niece called her on her phone. She said, And Teresa, Aunt Teresa. She says, what, what? She said, do you have your knife? I'm stuck in my dress, and I can't get out. Can you cut me out of it? And I'm like, you're kidding, right? So she goes, okay, no. She came in. She took her knife, and she cut her niece out of that dress. <laughs> she cut her knees, so they bought the dress, obviously, right? They didn't just sure, leave it there, right. but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, buddy, so Teresa, who's like, you know, a girly girl, very feminine, she set three world records running twelve hours on a treadmill. So you know, she's 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 nobody's idea of a weak person. But she's she likes feminine, frilly things. She found this useful, and I'm looking at knives, and I'm going, they don't make knives for girls. Knives are kind of like rough looking male tools. Most knives are made for hands the size of a man's hands. Their colors are kind of mostly like dark, black, and gray, and, you know, just not very colorful. And I remember thinking to myself, there's got to be a way to get knives for for women. And I I did a summit last week with um, Mark Victor Hansen of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and he brought the founder of Constant Contact on. And we had a private VIP call with a bunch of people who paid for it. And and I told him about all this. I said, so what do you suggest? He said, well, you know, if you could go and make knives that are colorful, right? Like, like you know, like the kind of colors women like, like pink and fuchsia and blue, and you make them smaller so they fit their hands and the designs and the aesthetic are pleasing, There'll be a lot of women will buy knives. He says that's, that's been proven in a lot of different industries. So I'm thinking the disruption in the knife industry could be making knives that women would actually find cool enough to want to buy. yeah. And as a knife guy, that really appeals to me, even though that's not my business. I'm not a manufacturer. I don't know a damn thing about it, but boy, the idea really appeals to me. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of, you know, you talked about Donald Miller, same but different. And even going back to winning an election, you know, how did Obama beat John McCain? Well, in part, he did it not just with a story, that people could see themselves in, you know, change we can believe in, hope we can believe in. Uh, but he did it by making the voter, the hero. Uh, oh yes, we did. Oh yes, we can. Right. Yeah. Yes, we and can. And yeah. And that's, that's what, that's what you want. Right. I, I bought 60 knives cause it may be the hero. It may be the kind of man that I want to be. And obviously that has nothing to do with a knife. Right. No. But <laughs> it tell the brand, a good brand, a good idea. Right. Uh, a brand is just an idea that people believe in a good brand tells a story that other people can not only see themselves in but see themselves as the hero yes right yes it's the same reason why again I, you know politics is easy to talk about because it's pure marketing right most voters frankly speaking at least in america aren't searching, you know, all of the various policies of the, of the candidates. They're watching a debate or two and, or just voting their party bias. Yeah. And so it really does come down to the marketing, comes down to the personality of the person. How charismatic are they? And are they, do they have a good brand? Are they telling a story that I can see myself in? So make America great again. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Yeah. That's I a mean, rally cry. It's great Make America cry. great again. And if, and if you say, well, it was great to begin with, well, now you're just reacting to their slogan. That doesn't work, right? That's like mm-hmm. a sequel. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no. We, we want the original. And you he know. borrowed that from the 1980 Reagan campaign. Of course, yes, yeah. yeah that was Reagan's that, slogan. <laughs> no, nothing new except arrangement, right? Um, rearrange things, uh, repurpose things, reuse things that work again and again. And you know, Hillary Clinton's slogan was "I'm with her." Yeah,
1: not a great and slogan.
0: As as noble as that sounds, it makes her the hero. Nobody, nobody wanted to have her be the hero. Exactly. Donald- I mean, it's just like, I want to be the hero. You want to be the hero. The knife isn't the hero. The guy selling the knife isn't the hero. You, the customer, the voter, the client, the audience, you're the hero. You want an idea to spread? Well, share an idea in such a way where the person who hears the idea is incentivized to share the idea because it makes them a hero. There's a, you know, Snapple, right? You know, Snapple yeah, you, no mom. Um, look underneath the cap. And what do you have? You've got these interesting factoids. Yeah. Well, that was a very intentional marketing decision that the people at Snapple made where they go, what, what do we put underneath this bottle cap? And somebody said, we should put like a, you know, coupon for, you know, buying another bottle of Snapple. And somebody in the meeting said, no, 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 let's, let's put some interesting fact under there that somebody would want to tell their friends. This is called, Jonah Berger calls this social currency, right? Yes. It's the stuff every Malcolm Gladwell book is made of, which is, have you heard of the 10,000 hour rule? You know, I I read this book about this thing, about the study about violinists. And did you know the Beatles did this too? You know, it's taking an idea and it's making it as simple as possible and then it's making the person who hears the idea the hero if they share it it makes social currency basically means if you share this idea you look smart or interesting or important to your friends and that's ideas that have that sort of baked into them marketing campaigns brands that have that baked into them yes spread whether they're good or true or right or wrong or bad or or whatever
1: You know, there's a lot of truth to what you just said, and social currency is very powerful. Matt Church talks about that a lot inside of his ideas around thought leadership. Currency isn't always about money, right? For me, one thing that's currency for me inside of doing this podcast is I've, I've managed to interview some of the biggest names inside the world of personal development. I've interviewed John Maxwell, Mark Victor Hansen, Jack Canfield, Marie Forleo, et cetera. That's currency for me. Being able to get a big name thought leader on my show gives me a higher level of credibility. Last week, I did something called Your Finest Hour Summit. I co-created it with Mark Victor Hansen, who created Chicken Soup for the Soul. So having the opportunity to be on a a big virtual stage next to this guy and say, hi, Uh thank you for coming to my event that I just created with the creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, that was huge currency for me. Whether I made a penny from that event or not, that was worth it to me because it brought me to a space as a thought leader and as someone who's looking to increase his own ability to impact and reach people. Being on that stage gave me instant credibility at a level that I've never had before. That was important to me. And for everybody, you know, inside an election, inside buying a product. Everyone has something that to them is currency. So I think what you're saying is very valuable. You're one of the smartest people I've ever interviewed on the show. I have
0: to tell you that Jeff really enjoying this conversation. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah. I love this stuff. It's fun because you know, my bias, my suspicion is that there's always something happening beneath the surface. So why, why did that book become a bestseller? Why did that person win that election? Why did this thing happen? Maybe not for the reason that you think it did.
1: No, it's very true. I'm fascinated by by all this. I interviewed Scott Adams, who created the Gilbert yes. comic strip. Now, he's Scott- fierce. He's very smart. He <laughs> is. So he's probably the smartest person I've had on my show, like scary smart. That guy is ridiculously smart. So I remember, I love Gilbert, right? But yes. Prior uh-huh. to 2015, yeah. I didn't know anything about Scott Adams's politics. I kind of assumed he was a bit of a lefty because of you know the Dilbert comic strip, right? It kind like, yeah. right. of like, right, you, you know, just just kind of made sense, right? But I, I didn't know. And then right. he was the first guy who came out back in 2015 and said, "I think Donald Trump's going to win the Republican nomination, and he's probably going to win the presidency, and these are all the reasons why." And I remember he had a huge blowback because he'd never been a political pundit before. And then for a while he pulled back because he didn't didn't like the idea of the blowback. And he said he lost a whole bunch of his speaking opportunities because people stopped hiring him when they thought he was a Trump fan. And what was interesting though, when I spoke with him is I see him based on the two hour plus long conversations we had, as less of a Trump fan, as someone who really appreciates Trump's ability to message. And he calls it weapons grade influence. And Why? he said that the difference between Donald Trump and the Republican. Challengers that he had in 2016, and the difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that this guy was a weapons-grade influencer, and the rest of those people were in kindergarten. They did not understand yes. influence, and he did. And all of the cute little nicknames that that guy came up with—they <laughs> were not off the cuff. These people no, think they were—they were total strategy. Little Marco. So look. I happen to like Marco <laughs> Rubio, okay? Marco too, yeah. Rubio is my like kind of guy. He yes. is young, you know, yes. sincere, authentic, yes. real yeah. constitutionalist. And, you know, for yeah. a guy like me who was like in a totalitarian country and he can't, he, Cuba, you know, I really, uh, really yeah. uh, can relate to the Cuban people. I thought that guy would make a great president. I thought it was totally. like awesome. Me Donald too. Trump yeah. demolished him in two debates appearances, two debate appearances, and I watched it happen, and I'm like, Rubio's not going to be president, at least not this time. It's just not going to happen, and it wasn't because he isn't smart enough. It wasn't because he isn't sincere enough. It's just compared to Donald Trump, he wasn't there, and Hillary Clinton, everybody says she's she's some sort of genius, and I'm watching her debate this guy, and I listen to all the pundits say that she won the debates, and I'm going, did did we watch the same debate? Because I think she got trashed. And, right. and, and everything she said, she was like, you said, she made the entire story about herself. And I know Donald Trump has a big ego. So there's no way people are going to say Donald Trump's ego is smaller than Hillary Clinton's because you and I both know it's not. But all of his messaging was about the voter. Everything he said was about, I'm going to make your life better. We're going to change this country around. We're going to get you jobs, like all of it. And hers was all about, isn't it wonderful if you elect the first woman president? And while, you know, that has a noble sound to it and it would be a great thing for america to elect a qualified yeah. woman president um she just didn't get it and donald trump got it and when i sat with scott adams that's episode 93 i don't think it's on itunes anymore but if you go to my website you can listen that is worth listening to that you you will take good notes and learn a ton from that guy he had 30 minutes to give me, and that was an hour and seven-minute seven episode. Like he loved yeah. what was going on, and it went on. And yes. I, I pushed off my next two interviews to make sure I got <laughs> this complete with him. But by God, yeah. I'm listening to him and going, "You, dude, you really know your stuff. You really, yeah. really
0: know your stuff, and you do too. It's very obvious to me." Well, thank you. I love Scott Adams. I love that book, Win Bigly. What I think people missed and miss about him. Well, first of all, he, he's a self-proclaimed libertarian. Um
1: and socially very liberal, eh? Like you heard him talk about he's socially yeah. like like on the left part of the Democratic Party even.
0: Yeah, thinks thinks women should thinks uh doesn't have an opinion about abortion things women should decide what they should do with their own bodies and and that you know men shouldn't make those decisions. All kinds of non conservative, non-republican ideals. Um but here I mean, you know, Scott is um is a persuader. Right, he's a hypnotist, which is just about persuasion. And what I appreciate about him, because you know I'm a marketer, and and this is the same perspective from which I'm coming. Just to be clear for the listener, um, Scott Adams sees a master persuader, goes, "This guy's going to win the election," and everybody's mad because they take it as some sort of endorsement of his politics or character. And he goes, "No, you don't understand. Like this guy's playing a different game, and everybody's going to get destroyed." And he was right, and. This, again, goes back to the idea that ideas don't have to be true in order for them to spread. They have to be interesting. So what you have, even with Donald Trump, is you have an interesting idea. You've got somebody who is not from, you know, the political world, right? And all the things that they said, they had against him, you know, he's a billionaire, he's, um, you know, a, a businessman, he's not a politician, doesn't understand politics, whatever, whatever, whatever. He goes. Yep, 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 yep. You're welcome, right? And because that's what a good persuader does is he doesn't argue with you. He agrees with you. He goes yes, and I'm different, and that's why you want to vote for me. I'm going to drain the swamp. Yeah, it's a good thing I'm not a politician. I'm going to drain the swamp. You don't know anything about politics. That's fine. I'll hire people around me to tell you know advise me. That's how ideas spread. Now I want to be clear in the same way that Scott Adams you know tried to be clear about his prediction that Trump was going to win is, um, you know, if you're going to play a game like marketing or business or chess or whatever, you have to understand how the game is played. And politics is not a game of morality, not just a game of morality. And I hope morality, you know, comes into a person's politics. But you can't, I I love Marco Rubio. I thought he's a very earnest, good man from what I could tell. And he lost the game. He lost the game, uh, which is a big part of how politics and marketing work. And as a marketer, I look at you know the space of ideas, authors, business leaders, uh, marketers, politicians, and so on. And I'm, I'm looking for the interesting idea. I'm looking for the same but different. I'm looking for the story where the customer is the hero, not the, the vendor. And, and I go, oh, that one's going to win. Right, Chick Fil A doesn't win because they have the best chicken sandwich in the world. Uh, They even have an interesting slogan, right? We didn't invent the chicken; we just invented the chicken sandwich. Isn't (laughs) that that's a that's a clever humble brag, isn't it? It really Um, is. It really is. We didn't invent the chicken. Well, of course, that would be ridiculous. We invented the chicken sandwich. You did? Oh, (laughs) they, they were first. Oh, wow! And what do they do? They do everything a little bit better than McDonald's does. And then they go, we don't sell burgers, you know? And that in itself is enough. I know lots of suburban, well-meaning families who go to Chick-fil-A because it's a good, uh, healthy place to eat dinner. Good, healthy place to eat dinner, you're getting fries and a fried chicken sandwich.
1: No, it's, no. It's, it's, not, it's not. There are healthy things you can get on the Chick-fil-A menu. They opened a the Chick-fil-A in Toronto. And let me tell you, the first time we went there, there was a 45-minute lineup to get in. 45 yeah. minutes. And the lineup was getting bigger by the minute when we got there. So... Uh they're, they're doing something very, very right. And it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking in, in 2020, and it's it's election season, although it's also pandemic season. So it's a little bit crazy and different. But my, my own feeling of, of this particular election cycle is I think um, the fellow nominated by the Democrats this time is even more clueless than Hillary Clinton was on the messaging front. And and, and, and I didn't think that was possible, but it is. <laughs> and, and oh. I think he's not going to win. And I also think it's kind of sad that he's been nominated because he looks like he should be with his grandkids and he looks like he's suffering from some, some sort of cognitive decline. It's, it's really sad to see that. But
0: from a messaging point of view, he hasn't got it. He definitely yeah, hasn't I just, got it. I just don't see one old white guy beating another old white guy who already, you know, beat everybody else. I could be wrong. Um, and I have plenty of friends that, that think I'm wrong, but Again, I'm looking for the interesting thing. Obama didn't win just because he was black, you know, as some conservatives would think. He won because, I mean, I remember like, you know, being at the time much more conservative and going, "I don't I don't agree with any of this man's politics. I don't think he's qualified to be president." And then I saw Obama speak once and I go, "Oh, he has it. He is an incredible communicator, and he communicated in such a way that he made, his audience the hero? Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not, um, uh, you know, I think people hear things like this and they go, well, like, there's no hope for good in the world and it's all utilitarianism. And I don't, I don't think that's true. If you have a good idea, if you have a noble cause, if you want to change the world, if you've got a good-tasting chicken sandwich and you want the idea to spread, you have to understand this game. You have to understand marketing and innovation and how ideas spread, and, and that there is a way that these things work in the same way that you have to understand gravity if you want to fly a plane, right? Like you've got to understand the invisible forces that are influencing how you do your work in the world, how you show up, the resistance you're going to experience, the the trumps that you might encounter that know the game better than you and are going to squash you like Rubio. They're going to squash you before you even get to say your piece, understand the game that you're playing, understand what you're getting into. Please don't get into the game of business or politics because you just think you have a good idea or a noble cause and the world is going to reward you for that. There's a lot more factors involved there. You know, I love that old, you know, be innocent as doves, but you know, wise as serpents. This is the way the world works and we would be wise to understand it so that we who have good ideas and noble causes can see those good ideas and noble causes spread.
1: I'll tell you this. my own politics are very much on the libertarian conservative side. Um, and I um I frankly, I frankly wouldn't support somebody who's on the left of the of the spectrum, just wouldn't do it. However, I can respect people who are good at what they do. And uh, I didn't support Barack Obama. I didn't want him to be elected. I didn't want him to be reelected. Uh, I, and I think he was in that negative for the United States for a lot of reasons which we don't need to get into right now. However, I respect the man's ability to deliver a message and to get people to buy in and see his message as an aspirational message that they could get into. And I respect Donald Trump's ability to do that. And I agree with Donald Trump a lot more than I agree with Barack Obama. Although coming from an Iranian polite culture, my mother would be horrified Mm -hmm. if I did some of the things Trump does when he comes and he speaks to and hammers (laughs) the the reporters. And and my my own feeling is this, is he missed an opportunity uh, when the pandemic started And the opportunity he missed was to come across really a statesman-like. And I think the people that are already on his side, they're already on his side. You're not going to win more of those people over by being rougher on the reporters. Ronald Reagan is my model of who I believe was the most effective politician in my lifetime. The man won his first election by winning 44 states. He won the second one by winning 49. He came within a whisker of winning all 50 states. There was a reason for that. You know, if you go and and you read about Ronald Reagan behind the scenes, he hated Jimmy Carter. He called him that little S-H, you know, what T, right? This is a family show. I won't be (laughs) swearing. But he didn't like Carter and he didn't like Mondale either. But when he was out in public, he would demolish his opponents with a smile. He would demolish and disarm them. Sam Donaldson once once hammered him. And Sam Donaldson was as bad as any reporter today. And I think the reporters today are disgraceful the way they speak to the president of their nation. They need to be a little bit more respectful. But he went to Reagan and he said, do you take any blame for the current situation in the country? Is any of this your fault? And you know, Reagan just looked at him and smiled and said, yes, I do. And he said, really, why is that? He said, because once I was a Democrat. (laughs) I mean, that... That was it. You listen to that, you burst out laughing. Mm -hmm. Sam Donaldson had no comeback to that. He just sat there like dumbfounded. And Reagan basically politely with a smile told him, you're a blithering idiot, and I'm gonna show the world you're a blithering idiot, but I'm gonna look magnanimous while doing it. And Donald Trump could take a page out of Ronald Reagan's book. If he did that, he'd win a lot of votes of people who would agree with his policies but just don't like his tone and don't like his temperament and think it's unseemly for the president of the United States to be punching down. And, and, you know, as someone who agrees with his policies, I kind of think he could lay off the punching down. (laughs) It really really isn't the greatest thing in the world to do. You don't – if you're 250 pounds and a little two-year-old calls you an idiot, you don't go smash the little two-year-old. It's just not what a 250-pound muscle-bound man ought to do. Right. My two cents worth. Yeah. My two oh. cents worth. Anyways, yeah, I really enjoyed I this like conversation. Um, Thank you. And so you've got a really cool book.
0: Tell, tell the audience about it. Sure. I think this would be a good fit for your audience. Uh, I wrote uh, a book called The Art of Work, which is a book on how to – find your purpose and bring meaning to your work. And this book was a part of a research project I did where I interviewed uh, hundreds of people who were who had found their life's work. They were living out their calling. They discovered their purpose. Uh, and many of them were doing it for a living. And I found that there were these seven core characteristics that all these people had. They'd, they'd walked a very similar path, whether they lived in uh, Singapore or they were uh, working on a coffee plantation in Africa or they were in, you know, North America, South America, et cetera, all over the world. And if you have wondered why, why you're here, what you're here to do, um, the art of work is a book that can help you identify that path and, uh, following the steps that those who've gone before you have walked and maybe help you make sense uh, a little bit more of your own journey.
1: It sounds like a fascinating book. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. We're going to definitely have you back on to delve into it in more detail. Give me a sense of what are three things. We call them expert action steps. They're basically your best three pieces of advice
0: for my listener on how he or she can take their life or their business to the next level. What say you? So I tend to think in principles, not strategies. You know, so I don't go like, you know, read a a book a week or whatever. That's wonderful. Um, But I love the Stephen Covey quote where he says, Most of us are going to climb a ladder in life only to get to the end of it and realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. I think the worst kind of failure is success at the wrong thing. And so identity, self-awareness is very, very important to me. So my three things are, one, listen to your life. Parker Palmer says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. Before you set a goal, you have to understand, who are you? What are you? gifted to do. What is your genius? What lights you up inside? Don't succeed at the wrong thing. Get really clear on who you are before you figure out what you do. Listen to your life. Pay attention to the events in your life and what life is telling you about yourself so that you move in the direction of the right kind of activity that follows your identity. Uh, the second thing is to practice in public. Practice in public. This is the best kind of uh, marketing that I'm aware of, which is um, You are always getting better at something and letting people watch you do it, right? So whether that's a sport or a new business, uh, especially the world of social media now, do behind the scenes, share, you know, just like you're doing on the podcast, talk about your process, let people in on it. Is it vulnerable? You bet. And it shows you showing up to do your craft and it shows people that you're getting better. This is the best way for an artist to grow in his craft, it's the best It's the best way for a musician to get much, much better, much, much faster, is to start booking a bunch of shows, right? Start getting in front of an audience and showing them what you have. This is how comedians get so good so quickly, and it takes many, many years, and it'd take a lot longer if they didn't do this, is they just bomb, 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 bomb until they stop bombing. So you have to have guts. You've got to practice in public. Put your work out there continually, And over time, you'll get better and people will see you and notice you. And that's the best kind of marketing is your work on display for the world. Uh, The third thing that I would share is um, always act like an apprentice. Always act like an apprentice, meaning you're always an apprentice at something. Hemingway said, uh, of writing, he said, we're all apprentices in a craft no one ever masters. Daniel Pink calls mastering asymptote, which is a line that approaches an axis but never actually touches it. You just get closer and closer and closer, but you never actually get there. And so to always act like an apprentice means there's always somebody who has something to teach you, right? You were talking about Donald Trump earlier. Um, it, would, it would behoove him um, to act in such a way where he has something to learn from someone. And we all want to be around magnanimous people. We all want to be around people who are a little bit humble, even though you know they're really smart, even though you know they're really successful, Uh, not falsely humble, you know, not so self-deprecating that you're like, oh, come on, but they're always learning something from someone. They're truly acting like an apprentice. We want to be around those people. And when you act that way, you're always growing. You're always getting better.
1: Well said. Those are three awesome expert action steps. So listener, you can see that Jeff Goins is the real deal. Pick up a copy of his book. In fact, pick up five or 10 copies and give them to the people you care about most in your life, your clients, your friends, your family. And if you're wondering to yourself, how do I share my gift, my genius with the world the way Jeff is doing it? The question is a brilliant one. And my suggestion to you is simply this. First off, go to my website, ecircleacademy.com, and watch a wonderful masterclass that I have there in the form of a webinar. And this masterclass will basically give you a little tutorial on how to do exactly that. How to take that genius that's within you and bring it out so the world can see it and appreciate it. That's step number one. Step number two, go out there and fail, 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 fail. If you're a salesperson, make more sales calls and be ready to fail. If you're a comedian, go out there and do more comedy shows and be ready to fail at those. Whatever it is that you do, whatever your your genius in the world is, bring it out and be willing, in fact, be eager to fail. Do that powerfully and your world, your life will turn around and you'll get to live life as the best version of yourself. Jeff Goins, my friend, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It was an honor to have you. Nikki, thank you. It's my pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Jeff Goins, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. Check out the show notes, check out his book, go purchase a copy of it, go purchase five to 10 and hand them out to the people that you care about. And to find out how you can bring that genius within you out into the world, go to ecircleacademy.com and watch that masterclass and take lots of good notes. Until next time. Goodbye.